Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hey, I'm Charles Robinson, and welcome to Future City, the monthly show here on WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. It's been a violent year in Baltimore for juveniles. While the overall rate for murders in the city are lower, the number of teenagers being gunned down is outpacing what we've seen in recent years. WYPR reporters have chronicled the bloodshed. One of the most recent attacks happened in the Brooklyn Park neighborhood. WYPR's Emily Hofstadler went to the area to see how residents were coping. The day after the mass shooting, the mood in Brooklyn homes is somber. Mayor Brandon Scott sits in the community center for a closed-door community roundtable with Brooklyn leaders and city agency heads. Outside, birds and passing cars make the only noise. Yaffe Hart sits down in the playground. She allowed her 15-year-old daughter to stay out late to celebrate Brooklyn Day with her friends. Then the shooting started. She couldn't sleep for having um, like a uh, honey drink, like flashbacks, I'm saying. Yeah, she could not sleep. The city immediately dispatched trauma counselors who have set up a temporary space in the community rental office. Hart is grateful for that and took her daughter right away. It definitely affect, affected her and then, you know, me worrying about how she feels and stuff like that. Yeah, it's very, very much so. We live in crime every day, but it's never that severe, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, that was, that was a lot. That was a lot. But there's also a profound sense of anger. I've never seen this much public assistance. That's William Haynes, a 20-year resident who keeps a watchful eye on his godson who plays outside. He says the rec center is constantly closed and there are few opportunities for kids. If you give the people around here something to look forward to, I think the people in this neighborhood will put the gun down. But they have nothing to look forward to. Over the next 45 days, city agencies are helping with anything from food assistance, utility help, information on housing, or even about moving for some of the residents who want to leave the community. Haynes says it shouldn't have taken a mass shooting for the city to come help. As long as they keep it up, they can keep up the resources and just not after the 45 days forget about us again, we should be okay. As the week goes on, people cautiously come outside. Local nonprofits grill up burgers. A constant stream of teenagers run in and out of a big orange bus. Rick Fontaine Leandri operates the Peace Mobile, a traveling city-run bus that has video games, a recording studio, even a shower and bathroom to clean up in. The walls are painted a relaxing blue and the air scented with calming lavender. So you can sit here, watch a movie, uh, you can watch a training, a job training. We have laptops, free Wi-Fi, so children can come on here and do their homework. More than half the shooting victims were teenagers. The Peace Mobile offers them a place to be teens, but the bus staff are trained in counseling and can connect teens with other services. Not just teens, but parents too, said Fontaine Leandri. So that's what we do. We use it. It's like a fishing lure to, to get the children in there. Once the children come, the parents come. Your, your child is nice and safe right here in the front of the bus, you know, with our, our staff. And let's, let's service you. And if you need counseling help, if you need therapy, mental health uh, uh, 
uh, you know, services. We have all of that stuff on, on the bus. Leandri says the Peace Mobile needs to visit other neighborhoods. It will be in Brooklyn three days out of the week over the 45 days. Monzi leaders say they are working with community partners in Brooklyn to figure out a sustainable long-term response. Emily Hofstetter, WYPR News. The mass shooting brought into focus the horrors of young people dying and being shot. One of those who helps with the healing is Darnell Wharton. He's with the Baltimore Peace Movement. So first of all, I am delighted to have Darnell Wharton. He's with Baltimore Peace Movement. They were under another name. So Darnell, let's let's begin with people who don't know what you do. Explain to people exactly what Baltimore Peace Movement is all about. Baltimore Peace Movement is basically a movement for the city uh, given to the city. Now, it started with the six of us, uh, two founders, Erica Bridgeford and uh, Ogun Gordy, who got together back in like 2015 um, when we were all part of 300 Men March. And Erica, it, it, actually Ogun had seen something on TV between two countries and the ceasefire, right? And he was like, we should do something like that in Baltimore. And he went to a couple of people to, to push the idea, but nobody really gave him what he was looking for. And he, he was in this meeting with 300 with, um, with Erica and told Erica about it. And Erica said, you know what, we, some, we should do something about that. And then nothing ever happened at that. They never, they, they never got a chance to meet and everything. So one day Erica was in a car with her son and her son had said, and this is like back in like 2017, like the beginning. And her son said, Ma, do you know that the, right now Baltimore has the highest rate of murder across the country. And she was like, what? She was like, yeah, he said, it has the highest rate of murder. She said, somebody ought to do something about that. And she said, all these people talking about, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. Somebody should do something about it. And she figured, and she remembered that she had this old this uh, conversation with Ogun. Called him back and said, hey, what should we do about that? Remember your ceasefire day and blah, 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 this, that and the other. And they hashed it out and they talked about it and, and called the, the rest of the four of us who were kind of active in the community doing things well for nonviolence and um, against uh, against murder. And six of us got together and we had a community meeting and people came up with the, with the name Baltimore Ceasefire. But what it was is the premise of it was to have so many events happening across the city promoting peace that people would not want to do anything violent. So the premise of Baltimore Ceasefire weekend for 72 hours is having all these people advocate for peace and whatever they want to do, whatever event they want to have, but they're advocating for peace. So if anybody was to come out and want to have, want to be violent, what it would do is it would be a, events happening in their area. But like, well, let me go see what's going on over here. And somehow because they get involved in that event, having fun, being peaceful, around peaceful people, that it would take what they even thought about being violent out of their mind. And it wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be no violence that weekend. The actual movement itself, was kind of created by the six of us, but it was given to Baltimore because it we were asking Baltimore to be peaceful. So we can't lead a movement or have a movement with just six of us telling somebody to be to be peaceful. We have to say, hey, Baltimore, we're asking you to be peaceful. Because it starts with you first. It starts with the person first. Because if you get peace within yourself, you can exude it to other people. So we ask Baltimore to be peaceful. But why being peaceful? We're asking people to come up with these ideas for events that you want to have that promotes uh, peace and uh, nonviolence and have it in your neighborhood. It don't have to be too big. It don't have to be too small. It can be whatever it is you feel like uh, advocates for peace. 
And that's how it started. The, the biggest part about that is we weren't telling people to be peaceful. We were asking people to be peaceful. And we were giving it to Baltimore to say, what do you think it would look like if there was no murder in Baltimore? And that's how the movement started. Colonel, I've had the opportunity to go with Erica Bridgeport to some of these scenes where violence has occurred. And probably the most moving thing I have seen during this process is how she cleanses the neighborhood with Sage. Can you talk a little bit about that holistic approach that you guys have when it comes to death and violence? So it's the it started out, we called it um, uh, sacred space rituals. Um, actually, that's, that's what it's called, sacred space rituals. But we, we, we called it a seven-day sacred space because we would go to the space seven days after it happened to cleanse the space. And what would happen is we do those rituals because, and we invite everybody to it. You know, she brings the sage, you know, other people bring sage, but we invite people to come to the area because what we want to do is the area where the violence happened, we want to cleanse it of that particular violent moment and pour love into that space and make it a space of, uh, of, of happiness and love and remembrance of the person that transitioned forever, forever calling out their names knowing that they're fighting for us on the other side or hoping they're fighting for us on the other side in this uh, fight against violence and, and murder, but also just to make sure to remember who they were. We invite the family members and everybody can come. They, they, people come in and they, they play music there. Some people come and pray. Some people come and just stand there to reflect. Some people dance. I mean, it's a, a lot of things happens in that particular space. And what happens is because there was so many murders in Baltimore City at the time, we were trying to cleanse all the spaces. So instead of people walking through Baltimore past places where murder was, they're now walking through Baltimore past places that have now been cleansed and 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 happiness and joy have been put there. And, and remembrance of the person, good spirits have been put there and it's been cleansed with the sage. So instead of walking through all this murder, you're now walking through happiness and joy and, and cleansing. So those sacred space rituals were a kind of a part of changing how Baltimore was looking. Uh, instead of people saying, okay, that person was murdered over there, that person was murdered over there, that person was murdered down there or down the street, they now could say that person was celebrated right there. Happiness was there. And we talked about it and we sang and we prayed at that place where that person transitioned and, and we called their names out and we made sure that we make sure who we made sure we remembered who they were. So you now walk through spaces of joy and happiness and cleansing instead of a place of, uh, of uh, a moment of violence. Unfortunately, uh, Danielle, I, I know that you have watched this year with a degree of sadness like I had. There are just too many young people losing their lives in this city. I want to get your assessment of the how and the why. I can't say I approach it with sadness. I'm, 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 my, my heart goes out to somebody who, who, um, especially a child who loses their life and the family that is, uh, that is affected by it. Uh, I think what's going on right now, I'm going to be honest about what I think is going on. The generation that I'm in has failed the generation behind me because when I was coming up, we had people in the neighborhood 
who looked out for us, made sure we were doing what we were supposed to be doing. And some of them, some of them were what we call savory characters. They used to be on the corner. We called them our uncles. Some of them were hustlers. Some of them were drug dealers. I mean, it was, but they still made sure that the neighborhood was, you know, was safe for the kids. You know, things weren't happening that much when I was coming up. And if they reprimanded us, they told our parents, and then our parents reprimanded us. So it was more like a accountability for for us when we were coming up with the older people in the neighborhood. I'm going to say that my generation didn't reach back to the generation now that's hap- that, that is happening to. So my generation didn't go back and protect our neighborhoods like we used to. It was back in the day where if, even if you wanted to get into a fight with somebody, it had to kind of be sanctioned. Like, we're not going to let you fight, but if you want to fight, this is how we're going to work it out. This is how it's going to happen. It was more like it, it was more like they were controlling the neighborhood, so to say, Miss Sadie has to live here, you have to live here, we have to live here, but we're going to make sure everything is straight. And now, this generation that I'm a part of didn't kind of protect those youth like they are now, so they're out here wilding and they're doing things that they they just feel like I want to do this, I want to be violent. The systemic racism that the city is up under, the poverty that the that the city is up under, the homelessness, the hopelessness, the joblessness, the mental health issues, substance abuse in families, all these things, all those factors that lead capitalism, all these facts that lead to what's going on right now, our youth are up under without any guidance on how to move and and, and navigate through these things. But they find the ways that they think. They know how to, to deal with it and cope with it. And right now it's coming out in ways where uh, a lot of crime and a lot of killing are happening and it's happening to our young folk. Um, I think it could possibly go back to, I would say, uh, Fred, Freddie Gray's time. Uh, but what, what, I, what I will say that it's, it, it is saddening. Um, it, it, it's hurtful because I, I see when I, when, I, when, I, when I see every day how our young folks are acting uh, and getting killed out on the streets of this great city, Baltimore. I go, you know, I have to, we have to push harder. We really, we really have to push harder with the work that we do. Really have to reach out more to the youth with the programs that we have. We really have to sometimes just stop and just talk to a young person. Cause sometimes when you talk to a young person they can be really honest with you on what they're going through. And as the wise, as, as the wise counsel that we say we are as elders or older or, or older adults or adults period, we got to give them the wisdom along with the guidance that they, that, that they have in their minds. So I, it, it's a, it's a, it's a multi-pronged um, approach to what's going on right now. First, the root causes of, of violence has to be addressed. And then we also have to make sure that we're hearing our youth, on what they want to do and how they want to do it and where they want to do it and give them guidance and wisdom. I know you watched what happened down in Brooklyn Park like I did. It was both astonishing and the fact that, you know, when the police department says they didn't know, I, I was like, that's a, that's an intelligence issue. But that, that party had been going on for years. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that the Safe Street folks try and get on the ground and deal with things, but they weren't there at one o'clock in the morning. And this whole idea that 
you know, there are no gun stores within Baltimore City Linux. That to me is like, as you've indicated, we're failing on so many levels. That, I think that situation right there was a perfect storm of everything that happened in that moment. One, one at 12.30, one o'clock in the morning, we had a curfew and in, in, in set in, and maybe a lot of those kids shouldn't have been outside. Um, there, was a, there, were, there were adults out there also. And I think that particular Brooklyn Day event that's been going on for 27 years, um, this year, for some odd reason, I don't know why, it didn't have a permit. Normally, there's a permit. And I don't know how uh, knowledgeable you are of the permit process in Baltimore City, but in Baltimore City, when you give a permit, no matter what type of event you want to have in the public, when you do a permit, one of the questions in the permit process is, do you want police presence? And once that permit process goes through, a copy goes to you, to you, the person who put the permit in, a copy stays at the office where you put in a permit, and then a copy goes to BPD. I'm not saying that this incident should not have been, should, should have been known about it, but I know that in a permit process, even, even when you say you don't have, you don't want police presence, the police knows about it because they get that paper to their desk, to their, to their office of promotions and arts to say that, hey, this is what's going on. Now, Brooklyn Day goes on every, every year. I don't know if the police know if it's the same day every year. I don't know if it's the same day every year, but I'm pretty sure that that one particular permit process would have came across Southern District's desk to say, hey, Brooklyn Day is going on this today. Now, the other part about it is if that many people had gathered, somebody in that crowd should have seen what was going on because an incident of somebody, somebody got a gun happened two or three times before the actual real incident happened unfortunate incident happened where the DJ had to calm people down. At that, at that particular point in time, I felt like some adult that was out there should have called a police and said, hey, hey, it's, it's a whole lot more people here than we anticipated. You might need to bring somebody out here. As far as what actually happened, I think it's some neighborhood issues, some neighborhood beefs or whatever that just culminated at that particular time. So you have a local popular rapper that was coming to perform. So you know kids get on this Snapchat and, and, and Instagram and, and TikTok and talk about what's going on in Brooklyn Day and this rapper's gonna be there and this DJ is gonna be there. So all these kids are coming from far and wide across Baltimore City and the county. So they're all flocking there. And then you have this neighborhood issue, this neighborhood beef that was, that was going on in that area. So when you bring all of that together and you don't have the presence, and I, and, and I know that Safe Streets was there for a, a major part of that event, but then they left because they thought that it was under control. That perfect storm happened at that time. And unfortunately, we had all of those people being shot and the two that lost their lives. I just think it was a, a culmination of missteps, miscommunication, and uh, people in the area not being accountable to what's going on. Because I know I, as a parent, if I'd have seen that many kids out there, and no police presence, and the way that it was happening over the past 
four or five hours, I would have definitely say, hey, man, y'all, y'all, y'all need to get out here. <laughs> Because it's, it's, it's too many kids. We've already had three calls. Somebody got a gun. It's online. People pulling out guns here. So y'all, y'all might need to get out here. And that call would have went out long before 12, 30, 1 o'clock, maybe even 11 o'clock at night. I want to end on this, Darnell. Is there hope for this city? There is extreme hope for this city. And I'm going to tell you why. Because there are groups like mine that are still out here doing the work every day. And if those groups were not doing the work, it would probably be worse than what it is now. But there are groups out here, even even Safe Streets. Safe Streets does the work. They do things that it may not be reported, but Safe Streets has saved a lot of people's lives, has stopped a lot of beefs that they're just not out here telling what we do every day on an everyday basis. Like we stop this beef, we stop that beef, and. We stopped this person from shooting this person, and we got in between this beef right here. But the, the, the state streets locations across the city are doing the work every day. My group is doing the work every day. We have, we have, um, we have ceasefire schools. Well, now peace movement schools, peace movement churches, peace movement businesses that we go into these places and we and, and, and we try to instill peace. And these schools talk to their students, and these students go home and talk to their friends and talk to their parents. So we try to push it out here. Um, leaders of a beautiful struggle, uh, Alpha Justice. There's a lot of groups that's out here that that this mountain of murder and crime that are happening are chipping away at it one little piece at a time. And we all have the vision that one day Baltimore will be murder free, or at least come down, come the, the numbers will come down a whole lot because we're doing the work to save the lives. We're working on the root causes, we're working on the homelessness and the jobs and the hopelessness and and with sacred space rituals that people can come out and celebrate and put joy into somebody's life that has transitioned and the youth that have a voice right now that that, that says, hey, listen to me. This is what's going on. Um, and I need y'all to listen to me, but I also need your guidance. With those, with, with, with that happening and the groups that's out here doing the work, yes, there is hope for Baltimore City. There is, I, I have great hope for Baltimore City because it's a great city. And and when and, and when the first ceasefire weekend happened, people became unnumbed to what was going on in, in, in the city. They became unnumbed to the murder because at one particular point in time, people were getting murdered one every 19 hours. But after the first ceasefire weekend, it went 41 hours without somebody being murdered. And then we had a weekend where nobody was murdered. And subsequently, eight days after that, there was no murder. And then we had another weekend there was no murder, and it was like two or three days after that. So people were kept, people are catching on to the fact that this could possibly happen one day where Baltimore can be um, can have very very low numbers when it comes to murder. But the hope right now that people have because it it all it, it has already happened. Like nobody think nobody thought that for eleven days straight in Baltimore there would be no shooting and no violence in Baltimore, but it happened. So with that, with, with, with the way that happened right there, yes, the hope is there. And, and, I, and, I, and I have big hopes for Baltimore to become that peaceful, charm city that people want it to be. That's Darnell Wharton, and he is a peace facilitator. That's what I will call you. Thank you. I, I like that. Peace facilitator. And um, we thank you for joining us here on uh, Future City. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Charles. Thanks, Darnell Wharton of Baltimore Peace Movement.
I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We don't want you to go anywhere. In our next segment, a conversation with Antonio Johnson. Johnson is a safety expert who believes everyone who owns a weapon should take a safety course. And that's not just for you, but for your loved ones. We'll hear his story when we come back. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. Antonio Johnson teaches firearm safety courses. In Maryland, you're required to have a minimum number of hours of training if you purchase a weapon. Johnson takes us inside his training. First of all, I want to welcome to Future City Antonio Johnson. He's a firearms trainer. Let's begin with this uh, idea. Um, I think most people, uh, when they make the decision to purchase a firearm, they usually uh, leave the store after they've done all the prerequisite background checks, and they come home and they begin to inspect the uh, the weapon. Let's talk a little bit about how you get into that process with those who have a weapon and say, hey, look, I probably need some training on this. The good thing about the state of Maryland is I used to not like it, but I I appreciate the fact that we have such uh, stringent rules and a, a strong process before you get a gun, right? So in order to purchase your gun, you have to take a class for HQL, which is a handgun qualification license. That license is what you need in order to just to buy a gun, not to carry it, but just to be able to purchase a firearm. And with the HQL course, it's a four hour minimum requirement. And in that four hours, we'll go over basic firearm safety. So by the time that you leave the class anyway, you should know how to, even on your own at home, examine your gun. You should know the nomenclature of all of the, the buttons and what the guns do, as well as when you're examining the gun, how to do it safely with an unloaded firearm. And, you know, able be able to load and unload safely without having any negligent discharges wherever you are. So that's, that's one thing I like is by the time they finish HQL, um, safety is going to be the first thing in, in any basic class. And then, you know, to go further, we talk a lot about the laws because I, I know that's extremely important as well. Knowing how to use your gun is one thing. Knowing when you can use your gun is, is something totally different. Are you doing most of this training at a, 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 a firing range or are you doing it on a personal one-to-one basis? So it, it, it depends. So I, for the most part, the most of class, um, regardless of how long the class is, the majority part of classes will be done in a classroom setting. Um, they would only have to go to the range when we have to qualify. So for HQL, they have, a, it's weird, but it's a one shot qualification. They have to go to the range and fire one shot into a target. And that's it, just to show that they can safely do it. However, when it, when it comes to concealed carry, we're at the range a lot longer because you have a, 25 rounds for Maryland, 54 DC, but there's a qualification. There's a certain amount of rounds that you have to score inside of the target in a certain time. So there's a, a course of fire, but 
um, unless there is a, these are licensing courses I'm talking about. So HQL for that license to buy a gun, concealed carry to be able to carry it. But I also do skill and performance-based classes. So after, you know, a lot of times when people get their concealed carry, I can only teach you with someone. Most of that is going to be learning safety and laws. I can't really teach you how to shoot in that class. So I, I typically, you know, I'm giving information to students like, hey, come see me again so that you can actually learn skills and we can build on fundamentals. And those classes are 90 percent at the range the entire time. So that's kind of how, how I break it down. Let me ask this, this kind of odd question. Mm-hmm. These are uh, other than the requirement to purchase a firearm. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, you really aren't required by law to 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 actually go through the mechanisms that you just described. Is that correct? Right. So the only requirement is just that you pass the first time. Um, well, no, I can't say that. Th- there's only you have to do it every two years. Um, there's an eight hour course that you have to sit in um, for concealed carry. The, the first time you take it is 16 hours broken up into two days. The Every time you renew, it's only eight hours and you have to pass that same requirement at the range, the same qualification. The only thing about that is if you're walking around with a gun every day for an entire year and you only have to qualify one time, there's no way you're getting enough training to be able to be proficient and hit your target if God forbid a, a situation ever occurs where you have to defend yourself. And that's what I don't like, you know, because I try to tell everybody and push them to, hey, come see an instructor. Of course, they they think I'm an instructor. So they're thinking, oh, you just want more money. No, I understand the importance of training way beyond just getting your gun. Your license is cool and all. But it's just if you take my class and get a gun, that's not going to save your life. The gun itself is not going to save your life. About how many folks are you training on an average year? Um, in a year, let me do the math. So I'll say now I do concealed carry about once a month. My classes are typically, I try not to do over 25. And that's, and that's just concealed carry. But HQ, I do a lot of private. Sometimes people feel a lot more comfortable when dealing with guns that they don't want to be in a, a big group setting. So even this week, I've had three private sessions, whether it be a small family or, you know, so that the numbers are, you know, all over the place. But it's, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> Let me ask you this about safety, mm-hmm. because uh, you just indicated that sometimes, you know, uh, a person may purchase a weapon for safety for their family or, mm-hmm. you know, for business or whatever. Mm-hmm. What kinds of uh, ideas do you kind of convey to them about the safety issue regarding weapons? I've got a child at my house, uh-huh. okay, and um, I have a weapon. I'm assuming that that ha- I mean, I know that there's been efforts to secure weapons, right, by via various mechanisms, mm-hmm. and that's what I'm. I, I I hope that you'll be able to explain to the audience why that's important. It's very important because you're liable if the gun is in your name. You're liable for it. Period. Right. So if somebody in your household that lives with you, whether that be a child, somebody like you said, it's not mentally, they don't have a mental capacity to have or, or own a firearm. If they get access to your firearm and do anything, leave with it, commit a crime, that's on you because you didn't secure it. So you, I, I make sure that they understand that, you know, if somebody just takes it out of your house. 
why were they able to take it? The gun shouldn't be available for unauthorized access. So they understand that that's extremely important. However, um, I think it's even more important to when you have a child, depending on the age and the children at very young ages need to know about guns and gun safety. Um, I don't think it, it should be a taboo subject or one of those things that you just try to hide because at the end of the day, your child might not see a firearm in your house, but we know how the world is now. Your child might see a firearm at school because another child brought it and they need to know what a firearm does, how serious it is and how uh, final it can be if, if used the wrong way or if there's an accident. So I think it's, it's extremely important to actually educate as young as you can. And, and that's not people ask me, you know, what's the youngest or you know your kids. So it's like, you know, I've, I've seen a kid that's five that is mature enough to understand that I can teach them. I've also seen a 10 year old that I feel like I'm, he's not ready to learn. So I have uh, even uh, August 26th, I have a youth safety handgun class that we'll have at the range. It's an event for um, children ages seven to 17, because that's that's the biggest part of safety, not just hiding it, you know, but don't just have it in the safe. That's great. Have it in the safe all the time, but make sure you take it out and show them what it is, what it does, um, so they understand the severity of, of exactly what it is, and they'll respect it more. Curiosity is what gets kids killed. Well, let me ask you this as it relates to securing a weapon. Mm -hmm. I've seen everything from a lockbox to, uh, if you will, a, a wire contraption that's on a, on a trigger. Can you talk about those those items, if you will? Absolutely. So a uh, lockbox or, or or safe is going to be like the, there are a million different size safes. A safe okay. is going to be your best bet. Um, anything on the gun itself, I feel like is is unnecessary. And and what do they call those things? So that, like trigger locks, right? Oh, they that's have, what it is. Oh, yeah. Trigger locks. Okay. Trigger lock. I, I teach in my class that it's unnecessary and it'll probably get you killed because if you have a trigger lock on your gun, it couldn't possibly be in a safe because why would you have a trigger lock on a gun inside of a safe? That means if you do have a trigger lock on, it's not in the safe. And if it's not in the safe, that means, yeah, somebody could get it and not pull the trigger, but that does not stop anybody from unauthorized access. Even further, if we know that every safe ever made can possibly be broken into, then a trigger lock can definitely be broken off. Um, all it takes is just the, the the right amount of pressure or, you know, a kid take your gun out of the drawer that you had a trigger lock on, take it to school, and all of those kids work together to break the trigger lock off before the end of the day. I don't think trigger locks are, are, are a great idea. I think a safe is always going to be number one, but then you just have to determine what kind of safe, like what, what are the different sizes you have biometric only you know fingerprint safes i think that's great finger biometric is very fast but it's not the most reliable because if you've ever had a phone or anything that uses fingerprint sometimes your fingerprint doesn't work maybe your hand is moist maybe you're sweating in a high stress situation maybe you were fighting before you got to it and if you're bleeding your fingerprint won't work so i think have a biometric safe that also has a keypad right beside it. So if you try your fingerprint once or twice and it doesn't work, move on to the keypad. Because if you only have the biometric and it is not working when you need it to, that literally could cost you your life. What do you think are some of the biggest misnomers about uh, weaponry and, and firearms? 
that the public is missing. People look at firearms, weapons. We know that what they were made for. There, there is. We can't say that it's any other tool. It's a tool to take a life. I look at it as an equalizer, though. Most most people look at guns as evil, but guns are just tools that people use. And I think the biggest, biggest thing that people don't see, the public doesn't see, is all of this gun violence and, and things that happen, or the majority of it is not happening from the people that are taking classes and going through these long, expensive processes to get legal guns. You know, there are gonna be a handful of people that will take a class, get their guns, and whether they had a bad instructor or if they're just, you know, they, they weren't ready or they shouldn't have been carrying a gun, but they had a good record. There will be a handful of people that use their gun when they probably shouldn't have. The average person has too much uh, pride and ego. They don't know how to de-escalate situations and they may go for the tool of last resort way before it's a last resort. There are a handful of people, but the overwhelming majority of people that are law-abiding citizens, the ones that have the good records that are able to get these guns, they're getting guns to literally defend themselves. So I hear a lot of uh, arguments sometimes about, well, we just don't need guns like all around. Guns are just bad. Guns is the reason why there's so much. And I'm just like, okay, so if we took all of the guns from legal owners and illegal, which that's impossible because people that shouldn't have guns will always have guns. But if we just wipe them out of our country, there will still be crime because evil people are here. And the, the problem is, if you don't have an equalizer like that gun, how can you defend yourself? If you're just a, a you know, a law abiding citizen, you're not in a gang or anything. What do you do with no gun when five or six people kick down your door? They don't have guns, but you don't either. So how do you how do you equalize one person against five or six? How do you protect your family when it's just you with no weapons? Yeah, they don't have them either, but it's six of them because they're they're in the gang or they're all together. Or what do you do when you're a smaller woman? You have a strong man trying to take advantage of you. What do you do because you don't have a gun or, or you know, any firearm? That, that's what the equalizer is. It's like there's a, a such thing as a disparity of force. So we have firearms in order to defend ourselves from any situation like that. We know that um, there are going to be a lot of illegal gun owners and they're going to try to carjack you, um, rob you. And the fact that you get your uh, legal firearm and take these classes so that you know that if the, if any situation occurs like that, you should be able to you have the right to defend yourself and not just let them kill you. Now, granted, that's another thing we go over. Obviously, if, if you're about to get robbed, you're not going to have a gun pointed to your head and just try to reach for your gun and die. We, you know, we, we have to be tactically smart about certain situations, certain things you can buy. Insurance will cover it. But if there is a situation where you feel like life is on the line. And there's an opportunity that you could save or preserve life, whether it be yours or someone else, you should have the right to do so and the tool to be able to do so. Obviously, the popularization of of guns and usage of guns and everything from movies to, uh, you know, your latest PlayStation or Xbox has given gun culture I want to say a renewed kind of like, see, you can do this. What would you caution people about when they see that? That's a big thing we go over in class too. A lot of people, when you whether you plan a video game or you see it in a movie, TV show, um, a lot of things are not taken into account. So you see 
people, for example, in a shootout on a movie, the, the good guy never gets hit. Everybody's shooting at the good guy and he makes it through a thousand bullets. And people don't think in real life, if there's a situation where you're shooting at someone else and they're shooting at you and maybe you empty your whole magazine, if neither one of you got hit, where did all of those rounds go? Right. People, they think about on games, you can shoot a gun as, as easy as you can because you have, you know, these buttons control wherever you aim. It's different. Fundamentals in real life to shoot a gun are a lot harder than what we think it, playing the game our whole life. So fundamentals are key. But also, I just want people to understand, like the reality of what ballistics are, like what a bullet does. A lot of people are walking around with training ammo, um, full metal jackets inside of their guns when they should have defense ammo, something that will stop as soon as it hits a target, as opposed to penetrating and over penetrating. Maybe you shoot, uh, you're in a self-defense situation, you have the wrong ammo and you shoot a target or a threat three times and all three of those rounds go in that person and out that person and the round still hits something else. It's like you really have, you would, you don't know what you don't know. So you really have to, to I, I urge everybody to take even, first of all, a basic safety class and then go up to a basic fundamental class and just continue to go on and on and on. And I think what's more important than your gun classes are medical training. Just get some form of basic medical training because you'll probably need that before you need your gun. And they, they go hand in hand. That's Antonio Johnson the owner of Draw Defense, which is a firearms training facility. He's a firearms trainer and expert, and he, we welcome you for joining us here on Future City. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks, Antonio Johnson, who is the owner of Draw Defense, which is a firearms training organization. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We have to take another break. Don't you go anywhere. In our last segment, a conversation with Furman de Brabander. He's the author of Do Guns Make Us Free? He'll drill down on America's obsession with gun culture. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City a monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. Furman de Brabander is the author of Do Guns Make Us Free? He's been studying the proliferation of guns in our society and why people are arming themselves. First and foremost, I am delighted to be joined by Furman DeBraubander. He has a book out. We'll talk a little bit about his book. But Furman, let's begin with this idea. Uh, this country has had a Second Amendment since its founding. Where are we with this whole idea of uh, a well-regulated militia as well as, uh, you know, how we deal with this whole issue of guns in, in our society? I think what I would like people to understand is our society that is now awash with guns, this state, this condition we're in is actually recent. Um, you know, we're over 400 million guns since the pandemic. That was 300 million guns not too long ago. Uh, this is far more than one gun per person. 
the state of the gun laws, for example, stand your ground laws, which, um, you know, allow you allow gun owners to shoot at perceived threats out in public on the street. Stand your ground laws are legal now in 28 states. The first one was instantiated, instituted, excuse me, in 2005. So that's recent. Uh, we also have permitless carry in 25 states, which means that you can carry a gun in public without a permit and no safety training. There was only one permitless carry law in 2000 as of 2004. Now we have 25 of them. 11 or more states have campus carry. What I'm trying to explain here is that the gun rights movement would like to say that our tradition of guns everywhere uh, is a very old and vaunted tradition, and that could not be further from the case. There are many scholars who have pointed out that we had plenty of regulations, even in colonial era. But what I want people to understand is that the last 20 states has even been an, a tremendous outlier. And one last point before I hand it back to you, I would like to point out that with all these guns, of course, what we're seeing is a great rise in gun violence. You know, it's getting pretty uh, remarkable. So in 2020, the United States, we had 45,000 gun deaths. That was a 14% increase on the year before and 25% higher than five years earlier and 40% more than a decade ago. So our gun violence epidemic is not longstanding. And we do not have to live with this. In fact, for most of our history, we did not. I want to talk a little bit about your book, uh, you know, Do Guns Make Us Free? Yes. I think a lot of folks have a counter argument to that as much as is that free from the ability to own a gun or free from the ability to be safe in the spaces that we're in? Well, I, I, that title uh, came about uh, precisely as a rebuttal to the gun rights movement, because uh, when I wrote that book a few years ago, it, I was thinking that the greatest strength of the gun rights movement is its political call, which is that, you know, guns, this is a gun ownership is a marker of our liberty. And I wanted to to push back on that and ask the question, well, if there are all these guns out there on every corner, and these loose gun laws that empower and embolden gun owners, we may not be so free after all. In fact, you know, plenty of surveys are pointing out now that uh, increasing numbers of people are reluctant to go to public places like the mall. Even they're afraid when they go to church, you know, we've had plenty of shootings in that venue as well. There's, there's no venue in this country that has been spared by gun violence. So people are increasingly afraid to go to these public places. So my question is very basic, you know, how is that freedom when people are afraid to go anywhere? I know a lot of folks perceive, if you will, that if I cannot be safe, mm -hmm. then I need to be armed. Yes. That is an argument that that has has resonated in recent years in lieu of what you just said. Talk to us about how that has evolved, if you will. Well, that's been one of the things that's really fascinated me about this. You know, I I have long been, you know, wondering why is it that the gun rights argument in this country is so powerful? I mean, I, I hope that this is something else I would I hope our listeners understand that America is a, is an outlier in the entire world when it comes to gun ownership and these laws that we have. Among the among the industrialized or wealthy democracies in the world, we have far and away the highest rate of gun ownership and gun violence, not even close. 
So what is it about this country that we put up with this, <laughs> that we allow this, and some people are eager to be armed? I don't really know. But one thing I will say is that, you know, the, the gun lobby is is has been quite masterful. The NRA, um, you know, most or many political th- you know theorists will say to you that they are real amazing uh, organization. And they have they have really pulled off something remarkable here. They have intertwine guns into our culture wars. They've made it a stand-in for individual liberty, for individualism for that matter. And um, I would argue that they have made guns a real go-to issue for people are, you know, that they, they want an outlet for their resentment, their anger, be it cultural or racial. The other thing is that, you know, the 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 I would say is that the gun rights lobby, the gun lobby, it has been quite remarkable at creating the very world in which their arguments uh, pertain or in which their arguments uh, ring true and persuade. What I mean by the what I mean is this: as there are ever more guns in society, and 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 society becomes more and more uh, violent and unruly and unpredictable, it makes more sense for you to be armed, right? So. That's the perverse uh, logic that the gun rights movement has pulled off is that as they get more guns into society with looser laws, that per- that persuades more people to be armed. <laughs> and so that's a very unfortunate state of affairs, because in a stand your ground society, you feel that you may have to protect yourself in the moment from someone who thinks you are a threat. You know, that's a stand your ground world that someone can pull a gun on you if they think you're threatening. Well, what are you supposed to do in that instant? Well, the NRA would have it that you should pull a gun in return. I think during the last 10 to 15 years, we have seen a number of, as you've indicated, states mm-hmm. who have codified laws that give gun owners. I would like to say more rights or more um, plausibility. I guess that's the probably the the logical thing to call it. And and I, and I guess uh, I think for those who live in urban areas, mm-hmm. who are often victims of gun violence, and that's not to say that uh, you know rural communities aren't the victims of gun violence. Mm-hmm. But there's a different kind of mindset mm-hmm. as it relates to that. Can you talk about how that mindset, you know, you've indicated the cultural wars, you've indicated this rural urban divide, mm-hmm. how that kind of plays itself out literally in the streets? Well, I mean, I have to say that ever since I started work on this issue several years ago, it ha- it became clear to me almost immediately and was, you know, emphasized over and over that race plays a gigantic role in this, you know, um, and I'll be very blunt, you know, white suburbanites feel they have to be armed against, you know, the people of many colors, be it the African-Americans or the Latino immigrants, you know, they they feel themselves, they feel threatened. And we notice, socio- sociologists noticed this early on you know, that this dynamic, why people were arming themselves. What we've seen in the last few years, especially since George Floyd, uh, the riots, the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, is that now minority uh, individuals are also arming themselves. That's why we're seeing the ballooning uh, gun uh, ownership numbers. 
But, you know, there's that dynamic that has always been there. And, and, you know, when you're talking about a city like Baltimore, where you have these neighborhoods that have, you know, longstanding crime issues and poverty, unemployment, you know, throwing guns into the mix is just, you know, a recipe for disaster. Um, But, you know, that kind of violence that festers in the city only embolders the suburbanites to be armed all the more just to, you know, to say, well, better protect myself from what's going on down there. But the last thing I would like to say is, you know, it is also unfortunate that cities like Baltimore and like Chicago get all the press. Um, It turns out that Maryland and Illinois have some of the lowest rates of gun violence as a whole. And those are states with pretty strong restrictions. So Chicago and Baltimore get all the attention. But what they do do is that they distract us from seeing the good that is done in those states because of their gun laws. And it turns out that states with very loose gun laws, which are big rural states, Wyoming, Alaska, and the like, they actually have really high rates of gun violence, but that gets completely ignored because these cities uh, get all the press. I think as people are listening to this conversation, they will come to a, a simple conclusion that somehow we don't have a handle on this. I'm assuming that that's almost truism, if you will. Because I can tell you that so-called red flag laws where people who shouldn't have guns, i.e. people with mental health issues, people with uh, issues related to spousal abuse and others are not, you know, I know in the state of Maryland, we have this on the books, but I look back at what happened in Tennessee and, you know, uh, this this whole idea of maybe we should start looking at so-called red flag laws. You and I haven't really discussed the Supreme Court yet. And unfortunately, Supreme Court has thrown a wrench in all of that. I, I am, of course, in favor of red flag laws. I would like to see much stronger laws. I think red flag laws is a last resort, you know, that... Um, many states uh, have those laws and, you know, uh, incidents like the like the that in Nashville, they fall through the cracks because, you know, you have to have agencies that are willing to regulate and keep tabs on people and enforce these red flag laws. And that's been a recurring problem. But now uh, the Supreme Court last year and it's uh, ruling New York State versus Bruin, um, you know, they uh they, they, it was Clarence Thomas wrote the uh, the majority opinion, and he basically said that all gun regulations have to, you know, be faithful to the period between uh, 1789 and 1868, which means to say that he wants to judge the constitutionality of today's regulations on a period in which there were hardly any, and that. That's his form of what we call originalism. We say this is a new originalist standard and and gun control advocates are up in arms, historians as well. You know, it's outrageous that we would want to look backwards for our regulations. Well, let me tell you one implication of this. Uh, A judge in Texas, uh, subsequently to that ruling, the the Supreme Court ruling, 
uh, said, well, you know what? Uh, red flag laws are not constitutional and they're not constitutional. So red flag laws among one of the, among the things that red flag laws would do is that they would prevent people who committed domestic abuse from accessing weapons. And this judge said, well, you know what? Domestic abuse was not a crime in 1868. So he overturned it. Now we find out last uh, just last month that ruling from that Texas judge is going to be heard again by the Supreme Court next year. Uh, they're going to reconsider that case. So I, and I'm we're all uh, anybody who studies the gun issue is very interested to see how that turns out. Uh, the Bruin decision is potentially devastating. It could you know, undermine any and all regulations that are already on the books in these states like Maryland and California, Illinois, that are trying to fight this fight. You know, the Supreme Court has really uh, said, you know, you know, has really challenged any regulations at all. And that really would turn us back to the Wild West. One of the things I think uh, those of us who observe what is going on in society, I know I am in this group of individuals. Why are young people killing each other and their access to guns? Is there a sense? In your world, that this is a prophecy of where we're going when it comes to gun regulation? When you have people, young people or any age people, when you have people that are fighting and arguing and they become emotional and, you know, ruled by these irrational emotions, I think the last thing you want is for them to have a gun. You know, a gun just escalates these uh incidents and you know beyond what they need to be it really makes them go out of control you know i have a couple teenagers at the house uh i love them dearly but you know i mean they're they're teenagers and teenagers they easily get upset and angry and offended and they have these rows they have these fights with their roommates or their friends where they feel disrespected um the criminologist David Kennedy, he studied a lot of like uh, uh, youth gang, gang youths in, in cities across America. And, and he said that, you know, so many of these fights, these firefights between these youths is really over respect, you know. And so it's really unfortunate that they, you know, that they feel the need or that actually what's unfortunate that they have access to these deadly weapons, you know, in these incendiary moments, you know, when when their irrational emotions rule them, really kind of take them away. This is exactly the kind of scenario where we shouldn't let people have access to these these guns. You know, they're they're resolving school disputes in some cases with these deadly weapons. Unfortunately, this is the future that we are locked into so long as guns are easy to access, you know, there's 400 million of them out there. How are we going to keep them out of people's hands? You know, that's that's a real challenge. I would, of course, love to see fewer guns. I would like to see it harder to get them. Baltimore is in, in the unfortunate situation that even though while this state has strong gun laws, we're surrounded by states that don't have strong gun laws. So it's so it's very easy for someone to get up to Pennsylvania or West Virginia and purchase the guns and then bring them into the city or anywhere in the state, really. And, and this is something we haven't discussed yet. But this is because we do not have a universal background check system in this country. If we had a universal background check system, that might help something. But without that background check system, I mean, federally and not statewide, 
this just makes it too easy for guns to flow into the hands of just about anybody. Herman, I want to get out of here on this. You indicated there's some court cases coming up Mm -hmm. and there's some other issues that may influence how we look at guns. Tell us where we're going. Not long ago, I was pretty optimistic about it, uh, which is hard to be if you're a proponent of gun control, because even though there's so many guns out there in this country, it turns out that 50 percent of them are owned by three percent of the gun owners. So it's very it's very concentrated. Over the last few years, gun ownership has grown. And now it seems that guns are flowing to more and more people. Um it, it is um, alarming. Uh, it is upsetting. I'm not really sure what the next frontier will be. Um, I applaud states like Maryland that have these strong gun uh, laws. What I've been studying lately with respect to Baltimore City is groups like Safe Streets, you know, that are doing this very important work on the ground, kind of like violence mediation. I, I think that that is as far as I'm concerned, that's the next frontier. And it's 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 our frontier because the Supreme Court has basically said we cannot do gun control. We are not allowed to do any more gun control. In fact, our gun control may have to roll back. So what do we do in that situation? Well, I think that groups like Safe Streets are doing incredibly important work, which is where they are sending these mediators, you know, between these warring groups. And we have seen in Baltimore City that the violence is falling in those neighborhoods where they're working. And I think that is absolutely wonderful. And that could have a great ripple effect because when we see less, when people see less violence in these neighborhoods or anywhere around that all that will give them less reason to be armed. And that could be a very beneficial effect. I would hope. That is Furman DeBrabander. He is the author of a book called Do Guns Make Us Free? Thank you for joining us here on Future City. Thank you. Violence from guns is not just a statistical data point on a chart. Lives are lost and in many cases ruined. Too often, the numbers make us numb. Many of our young people who are caught up in this carnage means they can't live out lives where dreams become a reality. Lost in this is those they left behind from mothers, fathers, siblings, and loved ones who grieve over what has been lost. The memories of precious moments linger. I am not immune from those who've been taken away in a violent way. My soul grieves. I can't get into the head of those who took the lives of others over a beef, a slight, or anger over something minor. Those who decided to pull the trigger have to live with themselves. Here's hoping someone gets to them with a better solution that doesn't involve a gun. Thank you to today's guests for sharing their expertise and allowing us to hear their knowledge. Future City is produced and edited by Spencer Bryant. You can listen to extended conversations with all of our guests and find out more about them by visiting wypr.org and search for Future City. You know we welcome your feedback, and you can email us with your thoughts and questions about the show at futurecity, that's one word, at wypr.org. Until next time, I'm Charles Robinson for 88.1 WYPR, and my producer, Spencer Bryant, and everyone who makes Future City possible. We hope your dreams 
of tomorrow become a reality. I'm your host, Charles Robinson. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at mccormickcorporation.com.